interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Quickly, um, basically I want to try to explain what I got from your second point and you can tell me where I'm wrong. Yeah, which way? <laughs> I'm not sure I got it. The second point was? Yeah, uh, it was about the point in time analysis. Okay. And part of this has to do with the fact that I'm a hard scientist. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Right. But, so, redemption is a process, therefore any theories have to sort of consider uh, the dynamics over time or as, right. as a process that you, right. can't, you can't look at an exact point in time but you have to think of a process. Right, I mean you can certainly look at an exact point in time but eventually yeah. that point in time needs to be put right. in, 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 a, in a... It only makes sense when right. it's put inside of a dynamic process over time. Right, that's it. Yeah. Oh, I didn't get it. And I think I mean, <laughs> this is... Uh, Dick Bear mentioned anthropology earlier. I, I think one of the problems with anthropology is it was first formulated. It's a problem that I think is being overcome, has been overcome. This is, of course, supercilious as an outsider to dictate to other disciplines. But one of the problems was that uh, primitive cultures were treated as if they were stable and fixed in time when the anthropologists got there without an awareness of change that had gone before and the inevitability of change and what follows afterwards. Some of the very curious, in some ways very strange, but also very encouraging research I've read by non-Christian anthropologists about missionaries makes the point that uh, as as bad as many missionaries were, with people who had little contact with Western civilization, global civilization, uh, missionaries were the only broad category of individuals willing to devote their lives to contact with people who were inevitably going to contact the modern world. This is kind of analysis is not to defend Christianity or not to defend the, the gospel, but is to, is to make a statement about a kind of academic naivete in treating new cultures. And and what I think, I think mean, actually the, certainly the better anthropologists and the one that, that, that are read widely and quoted have incorporated change over time in, the, in what anthropologists tend to do superlatively, which is look at a culture at one point in time. Yes? Uh, yes, uh, if I've talked about particularly narr- narrativity, does that mean I privilege things uh, under- understood through narrative as opposed to uh, experimentation? Uh, 
And the answer, I think, for the most important human things are yes. Uh, it's not at all to demean what is discovered by people who study things through experimentation. Because, in fact, by rigorous experimentation, I think there have been tremendous insights into the way in which God made the world and causes the world to work. But I am an evangelical Protestant, and so the, the redemption of the human sinner seems to me to be the most important thing. So that's even more important than understanding Boyle's Law, which I think I can remember. But Boyle's Law is important. I have to say. Yes? So, uh, as I read the scriptures, there's a lot of kind of overlap between knowing and doing. Yeah. As Christian scholars, is, what's the relationship yeah. between scholarship and activism? And then kind of along with that, should there be a certain bent to Christian academic work? Like kind of Christ talking about caring for the least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Christianity obviously links, as, as Drew said, knowing and doing should there be a particular bent in Christian scholarship? Um, I, th- I think the latter question, I, I have to say no when applied to any one Christian scholar. Uh, I would say that the Christian scholarly life contributes to the body, body of Christ. The body of Christ must be mobilized for those who are least able to defend themselves. The body of Christ must be mobilized for the marginal, for the weak, for those whom no one else stands for. So for a Christian scholar who, who, whose own, own work is not particularly involved in speaking for those who can't speak for themselves, I would, I would say the normal course of thing would be for that person to support the activities of the church that do address, directly address. The, the, you, you've asked a, a 21st century question. I grew up in a different century, uh, where the where the major evangelical question is whether uh, scholarship should be devoted toward evangelism. And my answer eventually came to be that for the individual scholar, it does not have to be. The body of Christ needs to be engage in evangelism and all the members of the body must support each other so scholars whose work is not evangelistically oriented need to be supporting other parts of the church that are evangelistically active but it's not a requirement for every scholar and I would say the same thing about social a Christian needs to be aware of the, the many needs in the world and, and to support Christian activity and even non-Christian activity to address those needs. But I, I don't think everybody needs to do everything. Yes? Uh, we talked a good bit today about how the Christian mind works and how that flows into vocation, but I wonder if you might share a bit about how the Christian mind rests or plays responsibly. How does the Christian mind rest or play I'm better at rest than play, I think. Um, six days the Lord God made heaven and earth, and the seventh he rested. I've actually become a very strong Sabbatarian. 
Uh, reasonably strong cemetery. So I don't necessarily read devotional books all day, but I do take a nap on Sundays. And maybe it's just self-delusion. But I've got actually a lot of work to do. You know, this, this, this curse of email, the blessing of email also. The curse of email means that you always have email to answer. Always. Some of you can put your Blackberries away <laughs> the next two, ten minutes. Um, and the question, the, the really profound question earlier about how, if you're in, a, in an academic track where the models, the ideals, the people you want to be like are 80-hour-a-week people, how to be a Christian um, don't do any work on the Sabbath. Yeah. Take a walk. Go to church. Watch, you know, so ridiculous, but watch golf. You know? <laughs> uh, do something special with your kids. Talk, talk, talk with your, talk with your spouse. Or do something that's not productively related to your work for the glory of God. Play is tougher. This, this you know, sound ridiculous, but actually at some stage in my life, I liked to play sports and did a lot, and I, but I decided I wasn't going to golf. I would watch it on Sunday afternoon. <laughs> the golf just took up too much time. But people were able to incorporate some bodily activity in, in, in the normal state of affairs should do that. And if you enjoy doing it, do it well, can do it without disrupting family and community. That's, that, that's a, that too is a gift of God. The, the thing about play, I believe I would say, however, is that Christian vocation is a serious matter. If you're called to be a physicist, it probably means you're not called to be a world-class decathlete also. Maybe it could be exceptions. And it means that particularly in our, in our culture where the idea that you can be everything you want all at the same time has to be rejected. People are going to f- work at physics for the glory of God are going to have to give up some things that are available in, in our American society. I'm really glad Drew Trotter looks at a lot of movies because I don't go to movies hardly at all, and my wife and I try to watch things that come in on the Netflix. But I don't, I don't, I don't want to have to keep up with the movies. Uh, this is a liberation. Uh, so I ask my kids and students about the movies and the TV shows. But it's good that somebody in the Christian world has a vocation to really take them seriously and probably enjoy them while you're taking them. I don't know, Drew, can you enjoy a movie while you're no. trying? Yeah, okay. <laughs> You're either, you're either enjoying it or studying it. But the, the play question is a good one because um, the, the, Lord, the Lord has made the world full of delights, but we don't realize them unless we take some time. Um, one of the reasons why I really become just a fanatic about some kinds of music is because they, they show how other people devoting themselves to these realms can bring light and life and uplift to those, the rest of us who aren't called into their realms. 
And I think that could be coming close to play, where you enjoy something that someone else does vocationally, but you're, not, you're just an amateur, and you have a little bit of time. Very good. Yes? Mark, I know you're uh, somewhat familiar with the work of David Steele. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know as much about the particular arguments as I should. Uh, David Skeel and William Stuntz are among the leaders of a still pretty young and not broad cohort of lawyers, real good lawyers, who are trying to reintroduce explicit Christian questions into doing of legal work, and, and they, they include think, things on the development of punishment. There's also a, a Canadian scholar by the name of Adamson who's done some of the same work that's been, been very fine. Um, I guess I'm a little ambiguous just because I've read not Foucault, but Foucault-type works about 19th century punishment, and, and the, the, the remedial idea of punishment could be a problem, uh, as, as well as the, the harsh uh, uh, punishment of, say, the 18th century Britain. What I certainly would commend, however, is the, the kind of questions that scholars like Skeel and Stunts are taking with them into an examination of these matters. They're using their expertise as lawyers and legal historians, but following questions that are clearly provided some normative shape by their belief in Christian teachings like the atonement. And that's, that's a very positive thing to see take place. I think we've actually come to the end of our time, and I'd like to thank you for paying attention and, and with a wonderful set of questions and comments, and, and would like to, uh, if I can find it in my notes, close with a prayer I mentioned Yaroslav Pelikan uh, earlier. He he was the commencement speaker at Valparaiso University in uh, the early 1950s. And the Valparaiso magazine, Crescent, likes to reprint stuff that was done before. And I'm going to ad ad adapt for today a prayer that he prayed in 1960 at the end of a commencement. But it's a great prayer for a group like you, yours. There will probably be some announcements and, and details afterwards. Lord God, as those who are involved in formal and informal academic life, we pray that the benediction of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit may descend upon us and abide with us. We pray that we all may grow in the virtues of the Christian intellectual, a passion for being, because the Father is the creator and source of all being. A reverence for language, because Jesus Christ is the word and mind of the Father. An enthusiasm for history, because the Holy Spirit works through history 
to produce variety and to unite all humanity to himself. Bless us, Lord, for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you.